Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. To arrive at a certain destination, you must be sure that you are on the right path. You know, uh, a few months ago before this lockdown, you know, back when you used to be able to get in your car and go visit with someone else, I went to go visit one of our our church members. And I used my, my cell phone with its GPS to navigate my way to their house But then on the way home, I I really thought I could backtrack where I was and and get home. But by that time, it was was dark outside, and and I was uh, talking with with my son, and lo and behold, I I accidentally turned right on 18 and went south towards the shore instead of turning left and going uh, north on 18 and, and heading home. And the worst part of it is that I didn't even realize it, until I started to notice some of the signs that I associate with going to the shore. So I was really a, a good way to the beach until uh, before I realized it. And as most of you know, the shore and my home are, are completely opposite directions on 18. So to arrive at a, a certain destination, you must be sure you are on the right path. It's just common sense. Well, that principle applies to the spiritual realm as well. As it turns out, you can't be on the road to destruction and at the same time be on the road to eternal life. They are actually two different paths heading in drastically different directions. And, you know, maybe you've known someone who professes to have faith in Christ, yet there's very little evidence in their life to back up that profession of faith. Maybe you, maybe you can think of someone like that that you've known. Maybe someone comes to mind. I mean, someone who says that they are headed north toward home, but in actuality, uh, in actuality they are driving the opposite direction, all signs seem to be indicating that they're heading south. And I don't know, maybe you can think of someone like that, but maybe also there's someone who's watching this morning that that might say, you know what, Pastor Stan, if I were to be honest, that describes me. Book of Romans is full of good news. It's full of good news that there is righteousness available from God that is from faith, from first to last, completely of faith. It's amazing news. It's the most incredible news. And Romans builds a just a magisterial case for what we call justification by faith alone. But before Paul can get to that amazing good news, he first spends the first two and a half chapters delivering to us the bad news. 
And it begins in chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And part of delivering that bad news includes first alerting that guy who is living in open sin. He's heading south in the wrong direction and everybody knows it. That's what Paul was doing in chapter 1. But another part of delivering the bad news is breaking the news to that guy who maybe thinks that he's headed the right way. Meanwhile, all the signs are saying something else. You've got to break the bad news to that guy too. That's what Paul's been doing here. In chapter 1, Paul lays into the Gentiles the openly depraved warning of the wrath of God that's being revealed from heaven. But then he, he turns his attention here in chapter 2 to the secretly depraved. Paul is singling out his own countrymen, his fellow Jew, the religious Jew, who thought that they were on the right path. Meanwhile, they were in actuality heading in the opposite direction. And last week, we looked at the first five verses of Romans chapter 2, and we're going to review what we talked about here for just a few moments. In these verses, Paul revealed an important principle of God's coming judgment. And that principle is this, that God's judgment is according to our knowledge. It's according to our knowledge. And, And really all that means is that God doesn't judge us on the basis of something that we don't know, He has enough to judge us on based upon what we do know. And if Paul could render the Gentiles without excuse for their idolatry simply because it's plain to see in God's creation that God is no idol, the Gentiles were without excuse, then the same thing could be said of the Jews. It could be doubly said of the Jews that that they have received so much they who had received the word of God and the covenants of God were without excuse, especially if they were condemning someone else and yet practicing the very same sins for which they were condemning someone else. And that was sort of the principle that we saw here from Romans chapter 2, verse 1, that in condemning others for what you condone in yourself, you're really condemning yourself. Paul said that when we condemn others, all we're really doing is demonstrating that we ourselves should have known better. Right? If you know enough to look at someone else and say, man, what they are doing is wrong. I can't believe that. Then you're demonstrating that you yourself should be held to that exact same standard. That's why scripture often says that the standard you use to judge others is actually the same standard that will be used against you. And so Paul in these verses is arguing with an imaginary hypocritical Jewish opponent here in these first five verses. And he reasons with them. He says, now we know that God's judgment rightly falls on sinners. And yet, why do you think that you will be exempt from this judgment? Right? Why do you presume upon the kindness and patience of God? 
why do you harden your heart and refuse to repent of your sins? Sort of my, my paraphrase. Paul says that through your impenitence, you are actually storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. It's hard news to deliver. But Paul's delivering that same exact bad news to someone who, who knows that they're heading in the wrong direction, or maybe it's blatantly obvious that they're heading in the, in the wrong direction, but he also has to deliver that bad news to someone who maybe doesn't even realize it. So in this next section of Romans chapter 2, Paul's going to continue speaking of, of this hypocrisy here, and he's really going to illustrate in a number of different ways that it is such a tragic mistake. We're only going to make it through the first six verses of this section here, verses 6 through 11. This section really, if I could boil it down to one statement, is simply this, God's judgment is impartial. Verse 6 is really the key verse here, once again, first verse in the section. It says simply, he, or God, meaning God, God will render to each one according to his works. It's a short verse, but tightly packed in this verse are really three aspects of God's judgment that I want to emphasize sort of individually here. I'm going to talk about them each. And, and then we'll pull them all together and draw a few conclusions here at the end. First, I want you to notice kind of what immediately jumps out, I think, when you read this is, is the, the statement here that God's judgment will be according to works. According to works, that's what the text says. Paul is pulling this right out of the Hebrew Scriptures. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 12 says, If you say, Behold, we didn't know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his works? To his work? Similarly, Psalm 62 verses 11 and 12 says this, Once God has spoken... Twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his works. So Paul's not saying anything that the Jewish person wouldn't know. He's not really not even saying anything that would be controversial to his Jewish brothers and sisters here. He's quoting their own scriptures to them, basically. In fact, this is another point of common orthodoxy around which they should be able to join hands. God's judgment will be according to works. Paul's going to flesh out this principle here in these next few verses by describing two ways or or two paths in verses 7 through 10. And he's going to describe these two paths in sort of a, a repetitive a B B A pattern. Right? In in verses seven and ten, Paul describes what I'll call path A. Path of those who, who do good. And then in verses eight and nine, Paul describes path B, which is the path of those who, who do evil. So sandwiched in between 
uh, verses 7 and 10, the, the path of the righteous or the path of those who do good is the path of the wicked or the, the path of those who do evil. On the one hand, path A is the way of those who are, quote, patient in well-doing, Paul says. And the idea here is of someone who perseveres in these things, not just does them upon occasion, but perseveres in them. And Paul says, these are people who seek glory and honor and immortality. Now, there, there are many potential definitions of well-doing here, but notice the way Paul is speaking of well-doing or doing good. These terms here, glory and, and seeking glory and honor and immortality. Paul is basically defining well-doing here as an orientation toward glorifying and pleasing God. How many of us define doing good as that? As glorifying and honoring God? Many times our idea of doing well or doing good, that doesn't even enter into the equation. James Boyce comments about these three terms here, uh, glory, honor, and immortality. He says, elsewhere in Paul's writings, these terms are used of the Christian's ultimate expectations. Glory refers to the transformation of the believer into the image of God's Son, by which the glory of God will be reflected in that person. Honor refers to God's approval of believers as contrasted with dishonor and even scorn accorded to them by the world. And immortality refers to the resurrection hope of God's people. In other words, the good here is not just being described as a mere morality according to the wisdom of the world, But it is God-glorifying, it is God-honoring, it is God-rewarding good. This is what the roadway of path A is paved with. These are the signs that you are headed down path A, the path of righteousness. On the other hand, path B is the way of those who, Paul says, are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, verse 8. Or stated more simply in verse 9, they are described as those who do evil. Once again, it, it isn't just any old definition of evil here that we should think of, but God's definition Right? There are a lot of forms of morality that fall short of glorifying God. There are a lot of ways of being good that in reality are self-seeking. There are a lot of ways to be good according to the world's wisdom that don't match up with God's wisdom in being good. And all such false systems of morality are bankrupt. And to God, they are evil. If, if the doing of good does not ultimately glorify God, then it falls short and it is evil. That's path B. And so, like Psalm 1 that we read today in our Old Testament 
reading, Paul is laying out the two familiar options, the, the blessed way of the righteous being planted beside God and his word and his commandments and his presence and the cursed way of the wicked that may at first appear to prosper for a time. But in, in the end will be like chaff that the wind drives away. There are only two alternatives in life. You, will, you are on one of these two paths. And these paths head in diametrically opposite directions. There's no possible way to straddle them and to have one foot on each path. There's no third way. There's no mediating position. You know, Jesus taught this too. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus instructed us, he told us, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus taught that in the end we would be judged according to our works. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And John 5, 28 and 29 says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Something Jesus taught too. Right? This isn't just Paul. And the point here is that it matters what path you are on because God's judgment is according to what you have done. It is according to works. You can claim to be on path A, the path of righteousness, all you want, but if your deeds betray that you are actually on the path of the wicked, then wake up, Paul is saying here, in, in the end your deeds are going to, to find you out and condemn you. Paul's not here talking about sinless perfection. He's talking about genuine repentance. Remember, he's addressing the hypocrite. His, his Jewish hypocritical countryman who talks the talk but doesn't walk the walk. John said it this way in 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So that's the, the first principle here out of this verse. I want you to notice that God's judgment is according to our works. Second one here, God's judgment is a repayment for those works. It says here that uh, in verse 6 that, that God will render to each one, he will repay to each one according to his works. So this repayment will take the form of either a reward or a punishment. On the one hand, path A God will give those who do good the, the reward of eternal life. That's what verse 7 says. Paul says that they will find what they were seeking after, which is glory and honor and peace in verse 10. 
But on the other hand, path B, God will give the, the evil person nothing but wrath and fury, verse 8. There will be tribulation and distress for every one of them, verse 9. God's judgment is a repayment for those works. Now, thirdly and finally here, God's judgment is for each one. It's for each one. Paul says that God will render to each one according to his works. He says that God shows no partiality. And then Paul really presses his point home here by applying this standard universally to both Jews and Gentiles. In fact, he repeats it twice here in verses 9 and 10. He says there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the the punishment will come first to the Jew and then to the Greek, but then also will the reward, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality, he says in verse 11. You know, the, the Jewish priority in receiving the blessings of God will also translate into a greater accountability for what they did with those blessings. Right? To whom much is given, much is required. Prophet Amos trumpeted this very point on God's behalf in Amos chapter 3 and verse 2 when he wrote to the, to the Israel, Israelite people, he said, on behalf of God, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Judgment must begin with the house of God first, mustn't it? And notice that Paul insists this will be applied on the individual level. Many Jews believed that they would be accepted by God on a corporate level. Right? They believed that merely because they were Jewish, as if God was going to reward all of Abraham's offspring, and therefore they would automatically be included. But God doesn't punish or reward on the basis of what someone else has done. He will punish or reward each one according to what he has done. You know, today is Mother's Day. And there's a a lot of wonderful things you can inherit from your mother. But you cannot ride your godly mother's coattails into the kingdom of God. God won't judge you based upon what your mother did or didn't do. He will judge you based upon what you have done. We could apply many of these same things to our our cultural or national identity as well. Here in in the Northeast, there's, I don't know if there's too much cultural Christianity left, But it's still worth stating clearly that you are not a Christian simply because you are in a quote-unquote Christian nation. No, God cares about what you individually do and he will judge you individually. That's what this text says. The same could be said for other group identities, even church membership. God won't justify you based upon the goodness of your church. He will visit you. We all die alone. 
So let's kind of pull this all together here. These are just three principles of judgment from, from this paragraph of this chapter. And, and we need now to sort of pull it all together and, and draw a few conclusions. First, to ask a question. Is Paul advocating in these verses a works salvation? By laying out two paths and saying that those who persevere in well-doing will will receive eternal life, but those who uh, perform wickedness will, will receive wrath and fury, is Paul saying that the way to salvation is through being a good person and doing good things? Is that what Paul's saying here? The answer to that is an emphatic no. I I can't emphasize that enough. Listen carefully now. No one is good enough to earn salvation except for one. That is Jesus Christ. No one is good enough to earn salvation except for one. And that is Jesus Christ. Paul teaches so clearly elsewhere in, in many of, the, of our most familiar verses like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 where he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. In fact, here in the book of Romans, Paul is building up his entire argument here. In cha- he's heading towards a, a bit of a climax here in chapter 3 as he's delivering the bad news. And really that climax begins in chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Paul is stopping every mouth. There is no one who is righteous. So we would do violence to this text here in chapter 2 if we somehow came to the conclusion that Paul was suggesting that we should just try a little bit harder to be good enough so that God will accept us. That's a contradiction. There's no way that's what Paul is trying to teach here. And so how do we make sense of this paragraph? This is a difficult little paragraph to interpret. Well, you have to keep in mind here, I think, the context. You have to keep in mind here who Paul is talking to. He is talking to a fellow Jew who thinks he is righteous on his own. He's talking to a fellow Jew who is hypocritically judging other people without a shred of humility, without a shred of repentance in his own heart. And Paul is, I think, addressing someone who is talking the talk but not walking the walk. And we all know people like this. 
Maybe we ourselves have been that at certain points in our lives. Maybe some of us are, are that right now. And Paul is addressing here someone, I think, who, who thinks that they are safe from God's wrath because of some, sort of some external sense of belonging. But they have bypassed the all-important repentance of sins and, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul, before he gives a robust presentation of justification by faith alone, he's tearing down any notion that it is possible to have a fruitless faith. Paul says, don't tell me that you're headed north, heading towards the heavenly home, when you're on cruise control, clearly heading south toward destruction. You're fooling yourself. Wake up and repent. Paul's saying here the, the same thing that James is saying in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, that faith without works is dead. It's not enough for Paul's brother Israelite to be Jewish and think he's going to be saved. Meanwhile, his presumption of privilege is actually resulting in his own life and him becoming hardened to his own sin, puffed up with religious pride. It does him no good. And, and Paul needs to wake him up to this fact. Paul's point here is that in the end, you are, you are not going to end up at eternal life if you aren't even on the path headed in that direction. I, I honestly don't even think Paul is really even saying much at this point in, in, in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 about how someone gets on path A or path B. He's not really, he's not really ma making a judgment on that right now. He, what he's simply saying is that you must be on either path A or path B and don't think that you can be living like you're on path B and claiming you're on path A. I think Paul's merely making this simple observation that I, I led with here this morning that to arrive at a certain destination, you must be sure you are on the right path. It's just common sense. And the scriptures are clear here that though we are saved by faith alone, we are not saved by faith that is alone. It must be a living faith. God is not mocked. What you reap is what you will also so you can't pull the wool over God's eyes. John MacArthur said it well, I think, that in Romans chapter 2, Paul is not giving the basis of salvation, but the basis of judgment. Paul, Paul's not really even going to get to the basis of salvation until he gets later into chapter 3. All he's laying here is the baseline of, of how God is going to judge, and he's going to judge according to, to your works, according to which path you are on. MacArthur said, we will be judged by our works, but we cannot be saved by our works. James Boyce said it this way, he said, no one is saved other than by the work of Jesus Christ and by faith in him. Nevertheless, it is significant that the inspired apostle does speak of two paths, and he does not encourage us to suppose that a person can reach the goal of eternal life without actually being 
on the path of righteousness. He continues here. He says, here is the wonder of the Christian gospel. On the one hand, it is utterly by grace received through faith. And even that faith is of grace. No one who is saved can possibly boast of anything. We are saved on the sole grounds of Jesus' death in our place. But at the same time, and on the other hand, those who are saved by grace through faith are placed on a path of righteousness where they do indeed perform such good works as the world about them cannot even begin to dream. This is why Jesus could say, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. If you need a righteousness better than that of the religious elites of Jesus' day, then it's clear you need a righteousness outside of yourself. And that is exactly where we are headed in this study in the book of Romans. It's exactly the point that Paul is trying to make. Again, John MacArthur said it well. He said, you cannot be saved by works, but you will be saved unto works. Earlier, I quoted the familiar passage, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For, in verse 10, this is the the verse that we tend to leave out of that. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In the final analysis, these few verses here from Romans chapter 2 touch a very deep chord among us, the religious May we never trust in our own goodness and and righteousness, but only in Christ alone. We're going to spend the the majority of our time here in in our Roman study glorifying in this wonderful truth that is our salvation is only by Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone. We're going to be relishing in those truths. However, I I am thankful here for this reminder from Romans chapter 2. May we also never presume upon the grace of God, but may the grace of God truly work out in our daily lives what he has so powerfully worked within us to the glory of God alone. So my my application for you this morning is simple, and that is to repent. To repent of your sins and, and to place your faith in Jesus alone. Please don't think about who you know that needs to hear this message until you apply it to your own life first. Have you repented of your sins? Have you been humbled by by what Paul is saying here and, and realizing that you need a Savior? Are you walking on the path of repentance and faith? Is all your religious behavior shaping you into a more humble person? Are you broken over your sin? Are you growing in your dependence upon his grace? Please, don't walk away from this sermon this morning 
resolve to merely try harder to be good, if you do that, not only will you fail, but you will have missed the whole point. I, I plead with you to walk away from this message convinced all the more of how much you need Jesus. Close with Psalm 115 and verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory. Let's pray.